Hi, this is Pastor Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for joining our podcast. We're walking through the book of Luke, thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, to see the world the way he does, and to integrate his patterns into our life. I hope you enjoyed the sermon today. I also want to point you to the description section where you can find the church's website. We would love for you to visit our church and consider investing in our ministry. There's two other links. One is a podcast I do with a therapist at Renew Church, and we kick around issues like dating, mental health, and friendships. And lastly, there's a children's book series and a journal that I wrote with my wife and my mentor, and we'd love for you to look at those resources as well. Thank you so much for being a part of the Renew Church family, and I hope that you enjoyed the sermon today. God bless. All right, good morning, Renew Church. How are you this morning? If I could have your attention, please. I am so sorry. Um, I have been sick again and again. I don't know what it is. I think after turning 55, uh, your immune system just gets shot and uh, you're not able to heal as quickly, right? Um, And so I'm kind of dealing with that. And um, uh, please excuse me. Today, I'm going to have this horse. I hoped, uh, you know that I would have this lower, kind of beautiful voice, you know? It doesn't sound like that at all. So I'm gonna be coughing and hacking and I'm gonna try to get through, um, you know, giving you a message that uh, will be well communicated. Uh, But good morning. Uh, We are gonna be doing a series on the gospel. It is the new year. And so it's very important for us uh, to get our minds uh, on what's important, right? And uh, so we've been doing our vision and values, which is very important for our church in the new year. And um, we also want to talk about the good news or the gospel. And it's very important. Um, This is going to be, I believe, very rewarding for me and for you as we study for the next four weeks on what makes up the gospel. Uh, The gospel literally means good news. And I believe the gospel... Um, is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. The gospel is humanity's hope, uh, really its only hope, and it's the foundation for the Christian life. It's what I'm most passionate about, and it's something uh, that I believe we need to be very clear on. So because of this, uh, I want you to feel the full impact of the gospel. And I'm going to admit to you this morning that as you listen to these truths, Uh, Some of it may offend you. Uh, Some of it may scare you. Some of it may discomfort you. But I want you to know that all of this is said in love. And remember, it's all taught in the Word of God. So what I want you to do is I want you to listen to these messages with an open heart and an open mind so that the gospel may do its divine work in you. You know, uh, my dad... Uh, growing up, uh, he was a medical doctor and uh, he was in family practice. But his passion, his love was acupuncture. Do you guys know what acupuncture is? Would you raise your hand? So I know, okay, most everybody does, right? Uh, it was his passion. Acupuncture is a treatment where they stick needles into a person to heal them, okay? So when I was growing up, uh, normal families, uh, when they got sick, would get Tylenol or they would get NyQuil. Uh, my dad would get excited and he would, st- he would bring out the needles, okay, acupuncture. And he would stick them 
especially when I got sick like, like I did today, right? He would stick them into my forehead and my face and uh, all around my head, right? And if anyone tells you that acupuncture doesn't hurt, they're lying, okay? Because of course it hurts. It's sticking needles into a person, you know? And I hated when my dad would do that. He would stick it in and then he would do this, right? Because it would hit your nerve and you're like, oh, this is torture, right? You know, what is he doing to me? And so because of that, I would not tell him when I was sick, right? I would try to hide that from him because I didn't want to get tortured, right? But I remember one time uh, after a junior high soccer game, uh, I had a sprained ankle and it was pretty bad. <clears throat> My ankle was black and blue, it was puffed up and I couldn't hide it. And so when I came uh, home after uh, soccer, my dad saw it and, and he exclaimed acupuncture, right? With this joyful expression and he rushed to get his supplies and everything. And uh, man, I didn't want this, right? I knew what this was gonna entail. And so here I am, I, you know, I wanna complain. And so I started complaining and my dad, as he was doing this, he said, ice, you know? And he, you know, he made that, he's a Korean dad, right? He's ice. He goes, David. He goes, pinky promise, okay? And I don't know if you know what a pinky promise is, but in my house, a pinky promise was very serious. Uh, if we could uh, bring that up really quick. A pinky promise, right, uh, would involve uh, taking your pinky and interlocking it with the person that you're promising's pinky, and then you would make this solemn oath with that person, okay? You would make a covenant with them, and you would commit to do something. So my father made me pinky promise that I would not murmur or grumble or complain until all the sessions were over. It's about four or five sessions for that sprained ankle. And he would not let me complain. He would not let me say anything, right? Because we had to pinky promise. And after I could complain all I wanted. But what my dad wanted me to do was experience what the treatment was doing in its entirety. Well, this morning, I would like uh, you to pinky promise something. Uh, with me, okay? So I would like you to uh, look at the person beside you, okay? And I want you to interlock pinkies. Would you do that with, with the person? And I want you to pinky promise. It's to me, but it's also to each other, okay? Do that, please, for me, okay? Pinky promise something, okay? You got all your fingers, inter or your pinkies interlocked with each other? Okay, now say this. This is a solemn oath, okay? You're gonna get in big trouble if you don't follow this oath, okay? All right. Say this, say this. I will have an open heart, say it with me. I will have an open heart and an open mind, an open mind. To, hear to hear everything that the gospel has to say. Okay, you pinky promised, okay? And so you have to, you have to allow that. But why, why am I doing this? Because I want you to feel the gospel in its entirety. And sometimes it may offend, it may scare, it may even discomfort you, especially today. But we have to understand how important it is to allow the gospel in its entirety to do its work. So <clears throat> the question I want to start off with is, what is your view of God this morning? What is your view of God? How do you think about him? How do you view him? What is your view of God? There's so many views out there. There is the deistic view. Can we put that up? That God is a, no, not the, the, the other one. Very good, okay? That God is a distant, impersonal, utterly transcendent being. 
that he is the ultimate unmoved mover who works like a cosmic clockmaker, that he made the universe, he wound it up, and then he let it go without any personal involvement at all. And many people uh, subscribe to this deistic view of God. There's another one. Can we put it up? It is the, can we put it up? Thank you. It is the humanistic view that God is like us as human beings, right? That he is like a Thor or a Zeus. You know, I was uh, sharing the gospel on a college campus and I, was, uh, I met this atheist and this atheist was highly intelligent. He was very affable and he was actually um, a really uh, optimistic kind of person, right? And he began, I began talking to him about the gospel and I was sharing with him how there's a God and he began sharing with me uh, why there wasn't a God and we got into this conversation and frankly, it was forever. He was very verbose and intelligent and he went on and on and I just want to get out of there, okay, after a while. I'm not usually like that, you know. I'll talk to somebody about the gospel but he was just taking a long time, okay, talking and so I wanted to move on because, you know, I had time. I wanted to share the gospel with somebody else and so I, I just stopped him mid-sentence, you know, and I said, well, let's say, let's say for the sake of argument that there is a God and you stand before him one day, what would you say? And then he started talking some more and went on this huge, huge kind of thing about, you know, how he couldn't, he, you know, there's no way that he could have believed that, you know, there was a God and all this stuff. And so I stopped him again. And I said, okay, so you're going to tell me that you're going to tell an omniscient, omnipresent, immutable, sovereign God those reasons. And he said, of course. And then you know what he's going to do? He's going to stroke his white beard. And he's going to say, wow, I never thought of that before. And then we're going to go arm in arm and we're going to have a beer together, you know? And you know, I know he was trying to be funny in one sense, but he was also serious in another sense. Do you know, he believed that God was just like us as human beings. And many people subscribe to that view. There's another one called the, what I like to call the Oprahistic view, right? Named after the mama mogul of all media, Oprah Winfrey. And she subscribes to this view that God is out there to enrich your life. That God is out there to make you feel good about yourself. That he is out there to raise your self-esteem. He is the chicken soup for the soul, genie in the bottle, Disney approved, ultimate warm and fuzzy feel good God. He is like your favorite grandpa who sits you on his lap and tells you how special you are and feeds you cookies and cake and ice cream and never tells you what you have to do or or how you have to live. He is just there to make you feel good about yourself. And there are so many myriads of people in this world who subscribe to that view. There's another one. It's the generic view, right? It's whatever you want God to be. I call this the Vegas buffet God, right? What do we do at buffet? I love, you could tell, looking at me, I love buffets, right? And as I've gotten older, I I don't go to buffets as much, but when I get a chance to, I love it. And you know why we love it? It's because we get to pick and choose the things that we like, right? And that's exactly what people do with God sometimes. Well, God is love? Sign me up for that. Man, I buy into that. That's awesome. But God is holy? I don't know if I like that. Mm, it sounds too restrictive for me. I, I think I'll pass on that. 
God is faithful. Oh man, I need that for my life. Yes, God is faithful. God is jealous. Oh no, 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 no. I don't like that. That's not something I want. And so we pick and choose. How many people out there have I met that say things to one way or another uh, like this? It doesn't matter what you believe about God as long as you are good and sincere, right? No one's cornered the market on God. All roads eventually lead to him. <clears throat> so you can determine what you believe about God. All these are very popular views. The deistic, the humanistic, the Oprahistic, the generic. But which one is the correct view? Um, one of my favorite movies of all time, if we could put it up, it's one of my top 10 movies, okay? It's called The Matrix. How many of you have seen The Matrix? Would you raise your hand? Okay, I think everybody has seen The Matrix. To some people, it's an old movie, right? It's a movie that uh, people want to watch uh, when they want to go back in time. It's a very, very... Um, it's a very, very memorable movie. Now, it's one of my favorite movies, and I judge movies by how many times I can watch it over and over again. I was actually on a plane flight to Korea. <clears throat> it took 13 hours, and I just watched The Matrix, and, and I had such a good time, and I watched it like 20 times already. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, it was one of the, it's probably the best movie Keanu Reeves has ever played in, okay? And uh, in the past, I have, I, I have talked about how I think Keanu Reeves is, is a terrible actor. You know, he has no range, you know. He, he always sounds like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures and everything that he does. And although that is all true, I love Keanu Reeves, okay? I have learned to, I, I've, I've been saved, I've changed, okay? And I, I really, really love Keanu Reeves. Uh, and, um, you know, I think after the John Wick movies, you know, I've just really come on board with him. But I believe Matrix is, right, really his best uh, movie, his best role. In the movie The Matrix, I don't know if you remember the scene where Morpheus, played by Lawrence Fishburne, meets Neo, Keanu Reeves, for the first time. And here he says, I know that you've lived in this world, and, and you've known that there's something not quite right with what you've seen and experienced. Do you remember that scene? And here Morpheus is explaining to Neo that the world he has experienced is a lie designed to blind him from the truth. And the truth in this movie was that the human race was enslaved by robots, okay? Right, by AI. Just something ridiculous that nobody would ever have ever thought. Something entirely unbelievable to a person who had always seen life a certain way in the movie. And here Morpheus gives Neo a reality check. And do you know what he says? He says, do you want to know the truth? And then if you put up the next slide, he takes the blue pill and the red pill, right? And the blue pill, he says, you know, Neo, if you take this, you'll wake up and you'll go back to believing everything's okay with the world. But if you take the red pill, you're gonna see how far this rabbit trail really goes. It's a reality check, right? You can decide whether you wanna take the blue pill or the red pill. And then he asked, do you wanna know the truth? Well, this morning, I wanna ask you as a congregation, do you wanna know the truth about God? Amen? Let's take the red pill this morning. In Romans chapter one, in verse 18, we see not the deistic, the humanistic, the Oprahistic, or the generic, but we see the biblic, 
I want it to rhyme. The biblical view of God, okay? Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. Let's read it. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Let's look in verse 28. Next slide. (coughs) Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent new ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Verse 18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed. This morning, I want us to look at the biblical view of God, that God is just, that God is a perfect judge, that God is angry. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us about this very important truth, that you would red pill us this morning, that you would wake us up to the realization of what reality is really like. And we pray, Lord, that as we take in this truth, that it would affect our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So we want to ask some questions this morning. And what we want to ask, uh, answer first is, what kind of anger is this? What kind of anger is this? In verse 18, it says, for the wrath of God. First of all, I want to say this is a divine anger. You might say, well, Pastor Dave, I thought all anger was wrong. I thought all anger was a bad thing. Who's this? Why are you saying that God is angry? Well, God's anger is categorically different from man's anger because it's not mixed with sin. Here, God's anger emanates from his justness. This means that God is, God is flawless and faultless and immaculate and impeccable in his profound sense of right and wrong. And so because God is altogether just, his anger is, number one, it's perfect. It's a consistent anger by an absolutely holy God. Augustine, St. Augustine said this, If God perfectly loves something, then doesn't it stand to reason that he must perfectly hate that which is opposite to it? So that if God perfectly loves righteousness, then must then he also hate unrighteousness perfectly? If God loves justice perfectly, then mustn't he also then perfectly hate injustice? And if God's, uh, God loves the perfect good, then he must also then hate sin with a perfect hatred. And St. Augustine is so right. God's anger is perfect and it's directed against sin. 
And it's interesting that even we get angry with the sin around us. Henry, you're so awesome. Thank you. Okay. I'm sure it's hard for, to listen to, <laughs> to me right now, but I really feel bad about that. <clears throat> you know, when you turn on the news and you see that terrorists are killing and raping and destroying people's lives, or you see that some gang is sex trafficking little girls, and you see all these things happening, you get angry with that, don't you? I do. You get angry with the crimes and the slavery and the unspeakable things that are being done in this world. And you know what? It's a right expression to the evil that we see around us. But you know what's interesting about this? Is we get angry with the sins that we see in the world, yet we find ourselves easily excusing our own sins, don't we? You know what C.S. Lewis says? He says we are inconsistent because we are sinful. Human beings can never be truly objective about sin because we ourselves are sinners. Elie Wiesel, the great statesman, wrote about a Jewish Holocaust survivor who survived Auschwitz, uh, that, uh, that concentration camp. And so he was able to get a front row seat, this Holocaust survivor got a front row seat to the Nuremberg trials where he saw the upper echelon engineers of evil come in and they were judged. And as he was sitting in the Nuremberg trials and as he experienced those people coming in and those people being judged, he in the middle of those trials began to weep profusely. And people didn't understand at first. And so they asked him, why are you crying? You know? And he said something that was very profound. He said, I expected to see demons and devils, but what I saw were faces just like mine. What was he saying? I thought as these upper echelon engineers of evil came in and were judged, I expected to see demons and devils, a different species of person. But what I saw was humanity, human beings just like you and me. You see, humans can't be objective about sin because we are all in sin. We share the same condition of sinfulness. We suffer from the same disease of sin. You see, only God can be perfectly objective about sin because he alone stands outside of sinfulness. See, not only is this a divine anger, it's a perfect anger, but it's also a purposeful anger. That word wrath, uh, in its Greek, means fierce fury under control. You know what that tells us? That God is not like some suicide bomber who goes into a crowded area and indiscriminately unleashes whatever, uh, whatever judgment that those bombs have. But he is rather like a sniper who carefully locks into a target and waits at the right moment to unleash its anger and fury. Jonathan Edwards says he is like the bowman that bends back the bow and with tension waits to unleash his fury at, directed at a certain person. I want you to picture God sitting on a throne waiting patiently to unleash his furious judgment. On who? That's the second question we want to ask. Who is he angry with, right? To what extent is he angry? Well, verse 18 says it is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness. So God, who is perfectly just, 
has a right to be angry with all sin. He has a right to be angry with sin wherever he finds it. The Bible says all godlessness. That means sin against his person, against his godhood. That every rebellion against his personal holiness and character, he is angry with. Sin against his person, but also all wickedness. That is sin against his creation. That every deed done against others, every deed done against his creation is something that he is angry with. That God, who is perfectly just, has a right to punish all sin wherever he finds it. We, as human beings, we have this um, misunderstanding that we think that God grades on a curve. That God is right to judge the big stuff. Hitler, yes, he needs to be judged. Stalin, of course, he needs to be judged. Paul Pot, yes. Serial killers, yes. But not me, right? And why? Because I'm not a serial killer. Because I'm not that way. Next to Hitler and Stalin and Paul Pot and serial killers, I look pretty good. I'm a good guy, right? And what we do is we compare ourselves to other human beings. We say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as Kristen Whitmore. Oh my gosh, she is a sinner. Oh, wow. And Kristen may say, is Kristen right there? She, she may say, well, I'm not as good as Dave over there, but I'm certainly better than Rebecca Diebold. Oh, she is a terrible sinner. Oh my gosh, right? And Rebecca Diebold could say, well, I'm better than Irwin, right? He's not here, so we can talk about him, right? I'm better than Irwin. Irwin, oh, he's a degenerate sinner, right? And we could go on and on, and what happens is we compare ourselves, you know, to each other. But what happens when we compare ourselves to a holy God, a just God whose standard is absolute perfection? You see, we think that God holds up scales, and he weighs sin and good works, and if our good works outweigh our sins, then you're in with God. You're good with God. He doesn't, he's like, oh, he's a good guy, you know? But God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't use scales. That God's standard is perfect justice. Now, in that, there's an unsettling fear, isn't there? John Calvin says it this way. It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself until he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating God to scrutinizing himself. And so it happens in estimating our spiritual goods. As long as we do not look beyond this earth, we are quite confident and content with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue, and we flatter ourselves. But suppose we begin to raise our thoughts to God and to ponder his nature and how completely perfect are his righteousness, wisdom, and justice, the straight edge to which we must be shaped. Then what masquerading earlier as righteousness was pleasing in us will soon grow filthy in its consummate wickedness. What wonderfully impressed us under the name of wisdom will stink in its very foolishness. What in us seemed perfection corresponds ill to the justice of God. You see, God is perfect, and his standard is perfect justice. Therefore, every sin from the biggest atrocity to the smallest motive must be judged by a perfectly just God. You see, when God is angry with sin, and when he punishes sin wherever he finds it, listen, it is the right expression of his justice. Think about it. God has a right to be angry with all sin. 
God has a right to punish sin wherever he finds it. And God is angry with all of us because of our sin. I want you to notice how personal his anger is. John MacArthur did a word study about anger, and it's so amazing. 98 times the Bible says that God is kara. That means he burns with fury because of humanity's sin. 41 times in the Bible, it says that God is karan. That means he reacts ferociously because of humanity's sin. 18 times, the Bible says that God is kasaf. That means he's intensely hateful of humanity's sin. 15 times, the Bible says that God is am. That means he foams at the mouth. Have you ever had somebody so angry with you that they were foaming at the mouth? I'm sure that's never happened to you, but the Bible gives that imagery. Because of humanity's sin, God is am. I want you to get the message that God is intensely and personally angry toward mankind's sin. Now, the third point, why is God so angry? Why is God so wrathful? Well, let's look in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Why is God so angry? Because mankind doesn't deal with this truth that we've just talked about. Instead, he or she she suppresses, the Bible says, suppresses the truth. What truth is that? Well, number one, that God will judge every sin. Romans 2.5 says that because of your sin, he's talking about human beings, you are treasuring up wrath for the day of wrath. In ancient times, rich people couldn't go to the bank to put their uh, wealth, and so they would build shelters to store all the gold and silver and all the treasures that they had, and they would carefully accumulate all of that wealth And they would account for it in their storage places, in their shelters. I want you to picture here, Romans 2.5 is saying, you are treasuring up not gold and silver, but you're treasuring up sin. You accumulate it in your storehouse for final accounting. So that every sin, every motive has not escaped the all-seeing eye of God. In fact, it is being stored up for final judgment. God is like the FBI. He's building a case against you. God is like an accountant who's adding everything up in the end. God is a perfect judge that will never allow even one sin to go unpunished. And you know what that tells us? That God will judge humanity's sin and that humanity in reality is an enemy of God. Now here's the red pill truth. The Matrix red pill truth was that we've been enslaved by robots, right? Something unbelievable to someone who's seen life a certain way. The truth is that when we see the holiness of God and we begin to state our, uh, see our state of sinfulness, we realize that we are enemies to God. This is traumatic, isn't it? It's overwhelming. And the truth is that we as a human race are enslaved by sin. Mankind doesn't deal with this. Instead, you know what they do? They suppress it. Verse 21, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him. Verse 25, they changed the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and create the created rather than the creator. What mankind does, men and women, they suppress the knowledge of God. <clears throat> the famous French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre 
probably the most influential philosopher of the 20th century, taught that there was no God. There is no God. And because there's no God, there's no creator. And because there's no creator, there's no creation. And because there's no creation, there's no meaning to life. We have been hurled into existence. The philosophers use the term gavorfin. We've been hurled into existence with no rhyme and no reason. Therefore, one logical thing that we can do is we can commit suicide, is what Sartre said. If you decide to do that, totally logical, because there's no meaning to life. But if you choose or elect not to commit suicide, you have to create your own meaning. You have to create meaning in a meaningless world. You know what that means? Sartre said, do anything that you want. Go out there and perform and, and, and act on anything that you want so that you can achieve meaning in life where there's no meaning. When asked about Christianity, Sartre scoffed and he says, that was never an option. When pressed further, this is what he said. And this is mind boggling, okay, in, in one sense. That this great philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre, who had all the, 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 the educated truths of uh, being a philosopher, he said this in the end. He said, I do not desire to be under the unremitting gaze of a holy God. When asked, Sartre said, I do not desire to be under that kind of God. If that's not suppression, I don't know what is. Why is God so angry? Because mankind will not deal with the truth. Instead, they suppress the knowledge of God. How do they suppress it? Well, number one, verse 23, 21 through 23 says, we invent our own God. We invent a deistic God who doesn't care what we do. We invent a humanistic God that looks more like us. He acts more like us. He's made in our image. We create an Oprahistic God that's more user-friendly. He's sugar and spice and everything nice. And all he's there to do is encourage us in the things that we're already doing. We make a generic God that can be whatever we make him out to be, even if he's not existent, right? Like the atheists do. Do you see why God is so angry? We invent our own God. And then number two, verse 28 through 31, we turn to our own way. And here... In those verses, you see a list of sins that follow from willfully living in rebellion to God. I want to bring us back to The Matrix, my favorite movie, right? Do you remember the scene when Cypher is meeting with one of the guardians, Agent Smith, right? Who's one of the, the guardians of The Matrix. Here, Cypher has been saved out of The Matrix, but now he wants to go in. And he agrees to betray all of his friends so that he could go back into the matrix. And why does he do that? It's because the truth is so traumatic for him, right? So he asks them to erase all memory of reality. He wants to go back into the, his fantasy life. He wants to go back and become a celebrity in this fake world. And remember, he's eating this huge Chateaubriand steak. I, I'll never forget this, right? This juicy, medium-rare steak. And as he bites into that steak, as he puts it in his mouth and begins masticating, mmm, mmm, he says, you know, I know this isn't real. It's the matrix sending a message to my brain that this is juicy and delicious, mmm. And you know what? Ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. You see, Cypher knows the truth, 
but he suppresses it. And in doing so, he believes a lie. And you know, there are so many, maybe even here, who've decided ignorance is bliss, right? I'm going to believe a lie. But can I share with you this morning that there is a truth out there that we need to understand, first and foremost, that God is an angry judge. Bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. I want you to feel the full weight of this uncomfortable truth, this inconvenient truth. (sighs) Father, we ask that your justice and your holiness and your righteousness would be revealed this morning. That we would open our eyes to the fact that you are nothing like us. That you are entirely set apart. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're really grateful that you'd spend time listening to the sermon series. And we also wanted to point you to a few other resources. My wife and I wrote a children's book collection helping kids bridge their faith with God's calling in their life as a businessman, as a doctor or nurse, and as a creative. Secondly, we wrote an adulting journal which helps young adults think through this transition into adulthood, whether it's transitions in friendship, family, faith, or calling. And lastly, I want to point to a podcast that myself and another church member, Roy Kim, who's a therapist, co-host together. It's called The Same Boat. We talk about relationships. We just finished um, a series on dating. We think back to an English ministry church, and we just tackle all kinds of topics that are relevant to our life. I hope that uh, those resources enrich your life as well. And lastly, if you're looking to partner with us, on our website, we have a give section. You could give to our general fund and continue to serve our church through... um, through partnering with us financially. But if you scroll down, we have quite a few local missionaries that have called Renew Home. If you read their bio, there's also a section to give to each one of our local missionaries. We hope that all of them would be fully funded going into this year. God bless you. Thanks so much for being with us and uh, hope to to, uh, have you join us again.